coming up on the Shark Fighter podcast. We want, I mean, we want to make sure that sarcoidosis patients are supported in this country. The Sark Fighter shines a light across the Atlantic. But I still do regularly hear from patients who give me a call and say, Oh, do you know what? I had no idea that you even existed. I was diagnosed 20 years ago, and I wish I'd known. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome. This is episode 38 of the Sark Fighter podcast. I am your host, John Carlin. This podcast is brought to you in part by a grant from A-Tire Pharma. Hi guys, I want to let you know I do this podcast to offer fellow Sark Fighters, Sark Warriors, if you will, hope. The official Sark Fighter song called Zombie is written by Mark Steyer, who plays in a band in Alberta, Canada, the White Hot Lizards. And he wrote that song because he is dealing with sarcoidosis, just like you probably are if you're listening today. And if you listen to the lyrics, man, it tells our story. So he has agreed to allow me to use that as the official song. And the proceeds from that song go back to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Of course, I call this the Sark Fighter Podcast because I'm fighting Sark, and so are you, whether you're a caregiver, a patient, a researcher. This is a place where everybody can gather and listen and hear what's going on in other people's lives, and if nothing else, maybe it kind of tells you that what's happening with you is not so very unusual. Maybe that makes it better, maybe it doesn't. Uh, Somebody very close to me always says it does not make me feel any better to know that you also feel crummy today. Um, But uh, I I think it does. At least it normalizes it just a little bit and you don't have to you don't have to worry quite so much. People with sarcoidosis are spread out all over the world. In the United States there's about 200,000 cases and and my guest today will be talking to us from the UK where sarcoidosis also happens but they have a slightly different way of dealing with it. But um, I've got people listening to this podcast now as I look at the the metrics from the back end of the website that I hear people all over the world listening to the Sark Fighter podcast, and that means that there are Sark uh, patients and fighters uh, all all over the world. And uh, I actually am working with um, trying to get a writer on who has a new take on sarcoidosis, and she says, hey, I, I don't fight sarcoidosis. It's it's not a battle against the disease. It's trying to find a way to live in harmony with my body. And so I don't, she says she doesn't feel comfort, she told me in an email, um, in terms of looking at it as a battle. Um, and I'm very anxious. I hope I can get her to come on and, and talk about it. She's an extremely good writer and she's been published in some major publications and uh, she uh, she just said you know i i understand the name of your podcast but the sark fighter uh but i don't look at it in those terms okay Uh, i i okay great um i look at it as me trying to overcome something every day and then and then when i do uh, i see that as success and even the term Sark Warrior, which is around, was around a lot longer than this podcast called the Sark Fighter, uh, you know, you see that as people who are, who are trying to overcome. But uh, I'm not going to mention my writer's name yet because it's not all nailed down, but I think that's an interesting perspective. And, you know, we've talked a lot here on the podcast about, you know, uh, the journey is the destination and you know, stopping to smell the roses along the way, and then even kind of getting to a point with some people, you know, where where Sark has made their life so difficult that the roses are the destination. You're not stopping to smell the roses; you're just trying to get to the roses, and that's a win. That's a victory. And here I am using um, uh, battle type terminology again. I guess it's just the way that I'm wired, but. The, the point is, is that we're all here, we're all trying to fight sarcoidosis, and we are, uh, we, we are trying to get on with our lives and make our lives as good as they can possibly be. 
and and I'm sorry if I use that in terms of wins and losses. Uh, maybe I, I don't want to even use it in terms of successes and failures, but the bottom line is, is that we're all here and everybody has got some sort of setback in their lives because of sarcoidosis. So um, that's that's why we are doing the podcast. Now, the, the hope is the other thing, right? Uh, I want people with sarcoidosis to know that there are people looking for solutions to the problems. And I've recently released a couple of bonus episodes. Normally, a a regularly scheduled episode has got a number on it. So this is episode 38, for instance. Episode 37 was with Charlton Harris, who is a sarcoidosis blogger. Um, But I I did release a couple of bonus episodes. And these are just uh, opportunities that come along when I'm involved with some sort of maybe a town hall discussion or some other uh, conversation about sarcoidosis, usually generated by the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. And so the two bonus episodes that I've released, uh, if you haven't listened, I I think you want to go back. One of them was a town hall, again, hosted by the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. They asked me to be the moderator on the topic of prednisone. And if you're listening to this, there's a 98% chance that you have been on prednisone at one time or another or that you're still on it. Of course, the side effects from prednisone are terrible. And I found that out myself. I was taking 80 milligrams a day for a long time. My face blew up. My viewers on television didn't recognize me or they were writing me these sort of bless your heart emails like, oh, John, what's wrong with you? Are you okay? And uh, and so um, I, I know firsthand what's going on. And so we had Dr. Elliot Krauser, who is the FSR's Scientific Advisory Board Chair, and Jessica Reed, who is an 18-year neurosarcoidosis patient, and Dr. Sanjay Shukla of ATAR Pharma, they, they all came on because ATAR is working on a drug that shows great promise and may be replacing, for some patients, prednisone, and that would be one of the first drugs directed specifically at sarcoidosis patients. And that's in clinical trials right now, and depending upon how it goes, we may have some exciting news to report later this year. I'm staying in touch with them, but we'll see. But in the bonus episode, those three people came on and talked about dealing with prednisone. Jessica had a terrible run with it. Dr. Shukla uh, went so far as to say that prednisone is sort of a poison that you put in your body that if it was going through clinical trials today, it would never be approved by the FDA, but it's been around so long that we now use it and we don't think twice about it. But if it was a novel drug that was just coming out, he didn't think that the FDA would approve it because of all the side effects. So that is an interesting conversation, and that's in that bonus episode. And, and again, I was the moderator uh, of that hour-long seminar. And then also, um, if you are trying to figure out what is going on in your body, uh, welcome. Episode 2 with Dr. Simon Hart of the UK kind of explains everything that's going on with sarcoidosis. If you want to know more about me, my story is Episode 1. And again, the most recent release is an interview with Sark blogger, Uh, Charlton Harris. He has pulmonary SARC. He's really been trying to push through. He's an excellent writer. He also happens to be a professional video editor, and I think you'll enjoy that episode. His blog, by the way, is No Tears for Sarcoidosis. Always a good read, and there'll be a link to it in the show notes. And then the other bonus episode, by the way, is still very relevant as I speak to you in June of 2021. And that was a look at sarcoidosis and COVID-19, specifically with the vaccinations. A lot of people had questions about whether the vaccinations were a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, Could they interact negatively with the medications that you're taking for sarcoidosis? Could uh, the, the current vaccines cause a sarcoidosis flare? And so we spent a full hour in that bonus episode talking with experts on that as well. So uh, you might want to check those out. And and anything related to COVID-19 has been very, very popular here on the Sark Fighter podcast. Now, today, uh, before I get to my guest today, I just want to bring you up to date on 
I've continued to ride my bike, and I talk about this a lot here on the podcast. I hope I'm not wearing it out and you're not just eye-rolling, but my performance on the bike is a gauge of how my body is doing and how I'm feeling as I continue on my journey in my life, and I'll say it, my fight with sarcoidosis. And a couple of years ago, I've shared with you in the midst of high doses of prednisone and regular doses of a chemo drug called cytoxin, I was unable even to finish my normal 14-mile bike ride from home, which is a loop I have been doing for 20 years. But I, I got one out one day, and I had to call my wife. I couldn't finish it. But as the year went on and the medication doses got smaller and smaller, I was able to get up to 30 miles. And that was a major accomplishment. In fact, it was part of a bike ride that was a fundraiser for the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Well, since then, my strength has been returning. I am now on Imuran, or azathioprine, and Humira, which for me have very few side effects. I've been using the elimination diet, which I've talked about here on the podcast. I've lost 25 pounds and gained a lot of mental acuity. I don't have the brain fog that I used to have, and I feel like I can take on more things, keep more things sort of active in my mind and and not feel completely terrorized by it. And I'm taking a probiotic and omega-3 pills every day, trying to work on my microbiome, and I think that's working. And so basically what I'm telling you is I've had a nice window of health. So during that time, I've been training inside and outside. We have a Peloton. I rode that through the winter, and when the weather permitted, I rode my bike outside. Uh, As I mentioned, I did have a setback with a polyp. Uh, which turned out to be a, a, it was cancerous, but it's very low risk, low threat. And I had that removed on my bladder back in April. So now just, what, May, June, July, so just three months ago. And, uh, but that was, that was two weeks where I wasn't able to train. And, but other than that, it kind of came, it went. The doctors are keeping an eye on it. I don't expect any big problems going forward. They don't anyway. And, um, uh, and it was it had nothing to do with sarcoidosis. It was just a setback. So anyway, uh, I'm very happy to report that I finished not one but two century rides of 100 miles each. Century is to cycling what a marathon is to running. So if you run 26.2 miles, you did a marathon. If you ride 100 miles on your bike, you did a century. And so um, and I have not done one since 20, I want to say 2015, might have been 2016, but certainly not since I was diagnosed with sarcoidosis. And honestly, I didn't think I'd ever do another one. So, uh, but I've had this window of health and my, uh, my riding was getting better and better. So my wife and I completed the cap to cap, which is a bike ride from Richmond to Jamestown, Virginia and back. It was 108 miles in a single day, including the ride from our hotel to the starting line and then from the finish line back to the hotel. So there was eight extra miles that day. And then two weekends ago, we went to Georgetown, Kentucky. That's just outside of Lexington. That's where all the horse farms are, where they raise the horses that you see in the Kentucky Derby, the Belmont Stakes, the Preakness, all the famous racehorses. And it is just gorgeous, just horse farm after horse farm with these beautiful brown fences and and the horses uh, are out in the pastures and it was absolutely gorgeous um and but it is sort of a difficult hilly terrain uh, and the day we did it uh, was a specific ride called the Horsey 100. The weather was cold and rainy. It was 48 degrees and spitting rain, and the wind was blowing when we finished, uh, when we started, rather. But we just dressed for it, went out and rode, and, and really, as long as we were appropriately dressed, it wasn't all that bad. And we finished that. So, it, so instead of doing one century, uh, we did two in the same month and I am on top of the world. I really am because I feel like uh, I, got, I was able to go out there and, and do that again and that my body is responding to the training and that the medication is not hindering me and it's it, and I hope it continues to be. I hope this lasts forever. But with sarcoidosis, we just don't know. And that's that's what I've found in my life, and that's what I'm hearing from people. So, you know, hopefully the medication will work. Uh, I won't have a flare. There won't have to be another round of prednisone or anything like that. And, you know, this is in, I guess, the, you use the word remission. Um, 
so I guess this is in remission, and uh, and I'm just out there trying to live my best life because I have sarcoidosis on my spinal cord. Um, it's it's permanently, even if it's just scar tissue, it's permanently damaged my spinal cord, so I can't run anymore, and the, the effects are still there every day of, of extreme uh, numbness or neuropathy, essentially from my chest all the way down to my feet. So, you know, I, I continue to deal with uh, the issues. Uh, the idea is let's just hope it doesn't get any worse. And if you've got it in your heart or your lungs, uh, you, you're dealing with the same thing. Or if you have neurosarc, and a lot of people suffer from pain. Luckily, I don't have that. I just have this this terrible lack of feeling and numbness. But the good news is is that here in the new normal for me, I was able to get out and ride my bike, and I continue to do that. And I'm just I'm just really uh, enjoying it. And uh, again, I want to I want to talk about reasons for hope. And if my story gives you any of that, then yay, I am succeeding. Now, let me tell you more about today's guest. That's Leo Casimo of Sarcoidosis UK. Leo reached out to me after hearing the podcast and listening to some episodes. And he wants to let people know that just as we have the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research doing work here in the United States, they have an organization in the UK that is also working on helping patients, trying to bring awareness to the disease, and raising money to do it all. And Leo is the senior executive at the organization. He, I will tell you, he is young, he is energetic, uh, and even though his staff is quite small compared to, say, the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, they are doing a lot. They are growing, and they have great guidance from a scientific advisory board. They are doing everything right, so uh, they are a great resource for people in the UK. And I think it's important to talk to Leo to shine a light on that, to help him get the word out and help him accomplish what he needs to do. And if you're listening in the UK, uh, I want you to know about that. Uh, if not, maybe folks can share this and, and we can get the podcast more listened to in the UK and we can drive people over so that Leo can help them out. Um, but, uh, we, you know, we think of this disease with no known cause or cure in our own lives. And then we look across the Atlantic and there's another nation uh, the UK, which of course is England and Ireland and Scotland and Northern Ireland, and and so there's there's a group of countries over there, but everybody's got the same problem, and their approach to healthcare is a little bit different because of the way that that England handles medicine more more socialized than it is at least so far in the United States, um, but Leo's going to talk about that. But when you get down to the approach to care. Uh, it's very similar. It's the same problem. It's the same drugs. And so we're going to listen to what Leo has to say. So my interview with Leo Casimo, Senior Executive with Sarcoidosis UK, is coming up. I feel like a zombie Just feeding at stumbling Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the Sark Fighter podcast. Joining me now all the way from the UK is Leo Casimo, who is with uh, Sarcoidosis of the United Kingdom. Leo, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, John. I'm really excited to be here. I heard about this brilliant podcast after a conversation with one of our members. And since then, I've been, been listening to lots of past episodes. And I think it's it's really fantastic to hear from such a variety of people affected by or involved with sarcoidosis. So it, it really is great to be here. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate you reaching out to me. I'm so glad that 
all the way uh, across the pond, you you have found <laughs> the Sark Fighter podcast. Uh, I look at the at the data that is supplied on the back end of the podcast, and I do see that I've got listeners um, all around the world. The vast majority of them are in the United States, and you get a sprinkling of them in the UK. So uh, I'm actually thrilled that this little project I started just over a year ago is now uh, getting a little bit of worldwide attention. So. Uh, so I'm really just really thrilled to have you on the show today. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your organization. Uh, of course, here we have the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, and that's the leading United States-based organization. And now you're kind of mirroring that in the, in the UK. Do you want to tell me a little bit about your mission? Absolutely, yeah. So I suppose, yeah, there are similarities between between the two. I'm my role at Sarcoidosis UK is I'm the senior executive. So I'm essentially in charge of managing the day-to-day operations of the charity. Um, our mission, well, we our mission kind of splits up into four to four branches. Our first one is to provide information to people affected by sarcoidosis, so patients, their carers medical professionals too. And we do this in in a couple of ways. So we provide lots of patient information leaflets. So we have a different leaflet for all the different types of sarcoidosis. Um, But we also have leaflets that we provide that aren't organ specific. So we have one, for example, that is sarcoidosis information for employers that patients can take to their employer so that their employer knows what sarcoidosis is and what it means for their employee. Mm. And we also provide information through um, lots of Q&A videos that we do and patient days that we put on. Um, and obviously that's all happening virtually now. Our most recent patient day was with um, the Royal Brompton Hospital on, on the 1st of April with the first day of Sarcoidosis Awareness Month. And that was really fantastic. We had sarcoidosis specialists from around the United Kingdom, as well as the Royal Brompton Hospital's sarcoidosis consultant group. And it was great to have all these, these really impressive clinicians together, giving really, really fascinating talks, I thought. So that, that's kind of a very long-winded description of our first aim, which is to provide information to sarcoidosis patients. To patients themselves. But with, with the caveat, you also... Um... You also provided to uh, employers. That's right. Yeah, I mean, well, we see we see a lot. Of, well, as I'm sure you, you're aware, but definitely in the United Kingdom, there's not a lot of awareness about sarcoidosis, which which brings me to my second aim. But we thought with the with the patient um, information for employers, we wanted employers to know basically what sarcoidosis is and, and, and that they need to be aware of a couple of things that that, that their employees might be going through. Um, but on raising awareness, that's another one of our of our aims as an organisation, and we do unfortunately see the the lack of understanding and awareness from both the general public and from medical professionals too. And we we really would like to change this. So we do a lot online with our we have quite a big online presence now. So we do a lot there and a lot on social media, and we're also involved with some advocacy work. So we represent sarcoidosis patients on a number of different patient advisory groups and patient advisory committees where we work on developing sarcoidosis policies. Got it. Okay. So that's mission number one. Yeah. Right? So mission, well, m- mission number one and two really. So one information and, and awareness. And awareness. Um, All right. That's yeah. right. So yeah. How do you, how do you get the word out about sarcoidosis? It's a hard one. It's a hard one. I think it, awareness kind of runs through everything we do. So when we, when we have a new piece of research that we've, 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 um, that we've done we'll really sing and shout about it on social media we're always looking for links to and and places where we can kind of shout about our work and it it comes in interesting ways sometimes for example a couple of weeks ago uh, the the BBC which is the big television channel here were were filming a 
um, a piece about one of our fundraisers and her name was Juliet and it was actually a really inspiring story. She had always wanted to run a marathon but then her sarcoidosis came along and she was no longer able to to fulfill that dream and she's on oxygen 24 hours a day. So she decided to do her own version of a marathon which was three, three kilometers in a month which to the average person doesn't sound like a lot, but to Juliet, that was a a really big challenge. So the BBC picked up on this story and uh, went to film her, finishing her amazing challenge. And I went along and spoke about the charity and about sarcoidosis. And it's interesting because so many people got in touch afterwards who'd never heard of sarcoidosis, but had been really inspired by this and decided to educate themselves or patients who'd never knew that there was support available for sarcoidosis patients got in touch. And yeah, I mean, like I say, everything we do, we try to, to, to raise awareness and, and, and shout about our work. Yeah. Yeah. Has the BBC piece aired yet? It has. It has. So if any of your listeners are interested in in learning about Juliet's story, it's available on all of our social media pages and our YouTube page. If you you just search Sarcoidosis UK or one word, you will find Juliet's amazing story. All right. And if you would send me a link to that, I'll put it in the show notes so that people can just find it and click on it. Um, or I can, that'd be great. And then, and then folks can learn more about, uh, everything you have going on there. Um, the, uh, and that is, that's amazing. Uh, she'd always wanted to run a marathon. And so I assume she has pulmonary, sorry. She has pulmonary and cardiac involvement and she's quite, she's quite a severe case. Um, but I mean, it's, what's incredible is it's not stopped her. She did all of this under the, um, advice of her, of her doctor. So we did check that she was okay to do it. Um, and she was, and she, I think she surprised herself because I think in the end she ended up doing more than she'd planned. So the plan was to do 3000 extra, um, meters in the in the month and she ended up doing four thousand or something like that so it was really really incredible i thought yeah that is incredible that that really is as as a former runner myself um even even when you're healthy running is hard enough and then you add all those complications and that that just really speaks to her grit and determination absolutely absolutely so there's there's two prongs of your mission Mm -hmm. what else are you guys trying to accomplish Yes. So another really important thing that we do is we provide support, emotional support for people with sarcoidosis and and again, also their carers and their family members. So we do this in in two two main ways. So we run Sarcoidosis UK support groups and they are taking place sort of in different geographical locations around the United Kingdom. So we have about 18 in total. And they are all run by sarcoidosis patient volunteers who who arrange a monthly meeting with other sarcoidosis patients who come together and discuss their sarcoidosis, what they're going through, if there's any issues they want to share. And they'll also occasionally get guest speakers to come and talk at the the support group meetings as well. Now, that all kind of had to change in in last year with with COVID um, and they of all transition to online meetings, which, I mean, I think in a way it's been tough because nothing will ever replace a sort of face-to-face connection in a a support group setting. However, I do think that one silver lining from from the situation, one of the few silver linings from everything that's going on, is that people are a lot more open to meeting online now. And, and that has meant that people who might be from a town where there isn't a support group can join, into, can join a support group meeting without having to travel miles and miles to get, to get there. And um, so that's one, one, one way we provide support. And the other way we do is through our Sarcoidosis UK nurse helpline. Now, our nurse helpline began, I believe, in 2016 or 2017, and it is run by two NHS nurses. So the NHS is our National Health Service, and they take calls from sarcoidosis patients. They work three days a week and and 
and patients can get in touch with me or send an email into the office and schedule a call back from one of our nurses. Now, our two nurses have lots of experience of sarcoidosis professionally, and one of them actually is a sarcoidosis patient herself. Really? So they can provide some really fantastic emotional support if somebody's having a hard time, but also they can help with the medical side of things as well. So, for example, a lot of the time people will get in touch if they have a consultation with their specialist lists coming up and they want to know what questions should I be asking or if they've had a um, a letter from their, from their consultant and they're not really sure what it means, they can call our, our one of our nurses and, and get them to, to explain it for them. And that has been really, really invaluable, this, this helpline. It helps so many people and particularly throughout the pandemic where, where sarcoidosis patients didn't really know what to do in the pandemic because I mean I, I think the, the information we were getting wasn't wasn't very clear at the start the nurses really did help a lot of people throughout the pandemic so that was really fantastic yeah so so this helpline and and these nurses that's that's interesting um, how do you staff that is it just the because you don't have a whole you know bunch of operators there behind you 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 have a very small what, two staff members for SARPK? That's, that's right, yeah. So we have two full-time staff members. And, well, I think it surprises people quite often that we have. I think a lot of people think we're quite a big staff with with some big fancy office in London, which absolutely is not the case. Um, but it, the way it works, and and, and patients do have to, to be quite patient sometimes because it's you can't schedule a call and have one th- that day. Sometimes there's an average wait of about four days to get a call back. So what will happen is they'll get in touch with me or send me an email. I will then schedule the call and the nurses will get back to them at the next available opportunity. It's quite hard for us to give people a specific time that they'll get a call back and the reason for that is some some calls that the nurses make will last five minutes and others will last 45 minutes so that makes it quite hard to schedule a a specific time slot for somebody to get a call back so usually what we do is we say the nurses will give you a call back in the next however many days and that will either that will be between one one and five o'clock in the afternoon occasionally um patients won't be able to be that flexible because of work and then children and other commitments and in those cases we can be we can do our best to make a, a, a more specific time but on the whole we found patients are, are happy to do that because it running it this way means that patients can have longer to, to talk to the nurses which, which which helps and the patients who are reaching out to the nurses are, are typically looking for what kind of information to be honest with you john it can, it can be a lot of different things a lot of people when they're newly diagnosed want to speak to a nurse who can who can explain it to them because they don't want to start googling and seeing information overload so they can have somebody who knows what they're talking about explain it to them in in a a calm and 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 relevant way um but also like i said earlier when when a lot of the times it's calls to do with what questions should i be asking of my consultant what what is what what is important in this letter that i've received from my consultant and they also receive a lot of calls about things like vitamin D and can I take vitamin D so sometimes it is just a, a quick question that they need an answer to sometimes it's it's a longer a longer call of somebody who's struggling and needs some some support and, and, and reassurance gotcha and then I would assume uh, the the fourth prong is you guys are, are raising money for for research right that's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. So we we fund research every year. We try we fund at least one piece of research a year. Um, and we we say that we're working directly towards finding a cure for sarcoidosis. And we do this in partnership with the British Lung Foundation. And, and the reason we do it in partnership with the British Lung Foundation is because we then benefit from their research expertise and they also match fund. So anything that we put towards research, they double, um, which obviously means we can have an even bigger impact. But it also means that when people are donating to Sarcoidosis UK, they know that what, no, no matter how big or small their donation is, that it's going to have a, a big impact. 
Gotcha. So, uh, you know, I mean, that is a lot to do for a small staff. I mean, <laughs> I, I see what's happening here in the United States with FSR and, you know, they've got a, a much larger staff. Um, and the, basically the two organizations are mirroring one another. Uh, but, but you, you've got a lot on your plate. How, what is your revenue stream in the UK? Um, so we are we are hoping that this year we'll be able to to raise a, a quarter of a million pounds, mm-hmm. um, which I mean we've grown a lot in the last few years. We really are growing every year. So we're hoping that that we will be able to get more staff and continue to grow and expand our support groups and, and fund more research. Um, and I think if we continue to, to do as well as we have, um, we, that, that, that is going to be possible. Um, with, yeah, like you say, we are, we are a small team. And, and the, good, the good part of being in, in such a small team is that we do see directly the benefit of the work that we're doing. And we can see... Very close up. We're very. We have great connections and, and, and relationships with the patients that we represent. Um, but then, of course, it means we have to work incredibly hard um, because we've got a lot going on. Um, but I think something that's important to say as well, or very important to say, is we do have a team of incredible volunteers and when I say incredible, I really do mean incredible. We have our support group organisers. We have our Facebook moderators. We have our board of trustees, Jackie, who is our patient ambassador. And we have as well our Sarcoidosis UK clinical board. And now Charlene and I, who work in the office, Charlene is the marketing and fundraising executive. I am the senior executive. We're both, of course, extremely passionate about this cause. And we've learned a lot about sarcoidosis through our work. But we are by no means medically trained in any way. So we have our clinical board who is essentially responsible for making sure that all of our services and our and the information that we share is not only accurate but relevant to sarcoidosis patients. And I mean, each, we've got eight members on our clinical board, all of whom have um, clinical or research experience of sarcoidosis. In fact, actually, uh, one one member of our clinical board is Dr. Simon Hart, who I believe spoke on your podcast not too long ago. He did. He was he was actually uh, in episode two, and Dr. Hart uh, very graciously suffered through all my basic questions, and <laughs> uh, he's the, the one that I refer people to when if they've just been diagnosed and they're trying to figure out what's going on, what is sarcoidosis. It was sort of sarcoidosis one hundred and one. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah and, and very, very impressive doctor. A brilliant man. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so your volunteers obviously are helping you out a lot. And, and so your budget, does it come all from donations? Do you get some government funding or how does that work? Yeah, so we are funded almost entirely from public donations of both time and, of course, the volunteer, volunteers uh, donate their time and public donations of, of money as well. We don't receive any government funding and we occasionally apply for grants um, which will help with our support groups or our helpline. But no, we, are, we don't receive any government funding and we are, we are funded almost entirely by public, public donations. So people, if you're listening to this and, and you want to help, please uh, make a donation to uh, Sarcoidosis UK. Um, so how, what is the sarcoidosis situation in the UK? I mean, I know in the United States, we've got approximately 200,000 patients and it's a disease that nobody knows anything about unless you've been afflicted with it or unless you're a specialist in the field. So is that pretty much the landscape in the UK as well? Yes. So yeah, there is some disagreement really about how many people are actually uh, actually have sarcoidosis, and that's because a, a lot of misdiagnosis happens. Um, but my understanding, based off my conversations with clinicians, is that it's one to two in every ten thousand people in the United Kingdom is a sarcoidosis patient. Um, All right. 
So I think coming back to the sort of fundraiser, one of the challenges that we have as an organisation is that people haven't heard of sarcoidosis unless they're affected by it themselves. So that makes it quite hard for an organisation that is funded solely through public donations, for donations from members of the public, because you wouldn't necessarily ever donate to to a charity that you for something you weren't aware of right so that 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 causes some 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 difficulties but what i will say is that those people who do fundraisers for us are incredibly passionate and we found that if somebody runs a marathon for us one year they'll do it again and again year after year or we've got lots of people doing lots of lots of exciting types of fundraisers I think in the last year everything seems to have changed and obviously with COVID any in-person fundraiser like the marathons or races or events that's all had to come to a stop really which has meant a big chunk of our of our funding has, has has stopped but we've we've really tried to think of new ways to 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 keep bringing funds in so we can carry on our our our, our mission so i mean one that springs to mind we did a scale everest for sarcoidosis challenge which which people could do inside their homes and people were climbing up and down the stairs every day to 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 do the equivalent of everest and and collecting donations from their from their friends and family and yeah i think whilst we don't have the biggest audience in the world it is growing and the the audience that we do have care really passionate passionately about funding research into a cure and 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 supporting patients in, in the uk so i'm trying to think how tall is mount everest like twenty four thousand feet yeah, it's a lot. It's high. That's, that's it, up and down the stairs a lot. <laughs> it is. It really is. And particularly if you have a lung condition, it gets it gets really hard. So sure. um, we, we allow patients to split out over a couple of months. And yeah, um, yeah I, I was really impressed. And yeah, like I said, it's so it's so rewarding and, and, and so inspiring to see people who who have enough on their plate already going out and, and, and raising awareness and, and, and raising funds. So, so for, for the average person who starts to have symptoms of sarcoidosis, um, a story that we've heard many times, and you may have noticed it if you've listened to some of the back episodes on the podcast, is, is people go to the doctor and they say something is wrong and the doctor can't figure out what it is. And then they go to another doctor and then to another doctor. And then eventually somebody says, hmm, maybe it's sarcoidosis. Uh, or they, you know, like in my case, did a biopsy. They weren't looking for sarcoidosis. That's just what they found after a biopsy. So, okay, now, now we have it. Do you, do you find that, in, to me, I think of the UK and I think of a, of a much smaller geographical space, even though you have a lot of people, it seems like it would be easier to spread the word and doctors would be more aware. Is, is that the case or did you run into the same kinds of problems? We, we do run into a lot of the same issues, um, particularly around diagnosis. Um, we don't currently have one agreed single diagnostic test for sarcoidosis. And I think that's largely due to how, how complicated it is as a condition. And in this country, it is, it, it's often misdiagnosed. Um, and that's largely due to the symptoms mimicking those of other conditions. And well, actually, we did a survey not too long ago, where we asked patients about their experience of diagnosis, and over 50% said that their symptoms had been initially diagnosed as something else. So it's, it's hard because a lot of doctors won't, won't know about sarcoidosis, definitely at sort of GP, general practitioner level. They, a lot of them don't understand sarcoidosis. So something that we try to do to, to, to help with sarcoidosis patients find in the right doctor is we have what we call the consultant directory on our website where we list all of the known consultants who who have a who specialize in sarcoidosis or have who have good experience treating sarcoidosis patients we have them on our website laid out as a map so that people can find the closest sarcoidosis specialist or hospital that provides care for sarcoidosis patients and 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 and, and take it from there all right, so I'm I'm going to go I'm going I'm going to dabble in history here for just a bit. 
and mm-hmm. my history is, is not that great, especially in the UK. <laughs> but um, I do know that when we when we look at the world map of concentrations of sarcoidosis, um, we tend to see it in the African-American community, mm-hmm. but we also see it in the Northern European community. And I also know that um, back around the time of Alfred the Great in England, mm-hmm. uh, the Vikings, as it were, collectively used and not pejorative, uh, but, but there was a lot of Northern Europeans who, who wanted to take over England. And so there's, there's a lot of that gene pool still in England. Mm-hmm. Um, is, there, is there any correlation between Northern European heritage or where, where do you see sarcoidosis showing up in your population, if you know, if, if anybody knows? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if people know, but I definitely yeah. don't. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I'm afraid. It would be great to know. Yeah. 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 No, I've, I've done the, the genetic research and, mm-hmm. um, and I have uh, mostly Irish and UK heritage okay. with, right. uh, with a little dose of Northern European. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. that that probably is, yeah. I mean, yeah. according to what, what the numbers came back. Um, I'm just wondering if that was the circuitous route that sarcoidosis found me. I mean, potentially there is definitely research yeah. that suggests right. that yeah, Northern European and, and, and African people are much more likely to, to develop sarcoidosis, isn't there? So it, that, that, that could be it. Lucky you, you're part, you're part from the UK. Right. All right. So, so we'll get out of my wild ass speculation here. <laughs> just, just get back <laughs> To, to normal uh, conversation. Well, so what is, what is your organization's long-term goal? Are you trying to grow? Are you looking for that benefactor out there who can leave you a million or $2 million um, and, and you can grow your foundation that way? Absolutely. I think we want to continue to grow as we have. I mean, a, a, a very generous benefactor like that would be absolutely appreciated. Um, we want, I mean, we want to make sure that sarcoidosis patients are supported in this country and, and that they have the information that they need. At the moment, I think we're doing a, a very good job of that. But I still do regularly hear from patients who give me a call and say, oh, do you know what? I had no idea that you even existed. I was diagnosed 20 years ago and I wish I'd known about Sarcoidosis UK. So I think a big push for us now is going to be getting the word out there to to, to people as they're diagnosed or people who might have been diagnosed a longer time ago that we exist and we can provide support. Um, and also we would love to fund more research. We're, we're happy with the research we're funding. We're very pleased that we've been able to do it every year. Um, but I, I think we, we, I, would like, I would like us to start being able to fund more research. In terms of we, we, our long-term goals had to kind of go out the window, in, in, not completely go out the window, but change slightly in the last year. Everything did really go on hold because of, because of COVID-19. And, well, I'll explain to you a little bit about what some of the issues we faced and some of the issues that sarcoidosis patients have faced because of COVID-19. In the last year, the, we had something called shielding in this country. And that is essentially where the government and the National Healthcare Service identify groups of patients who are they, who they categorize as clinically extremely vulnerable to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And then they write to those patients, advising them to stay indoors in their own home for pretty much 24 hours a day, apart from a few exceptions where they can go to medical appointments and, and things like that. And we were, we were quite concerned initially because sarcoidosis was not named on the list as, of of people who needed to shield because they were clinically extremely vulnerable. So we were a bit, cons- well, we were very concerned about this because we, we knew what we know about people who have pulmonary sarcoidosis or cardiac sarcoidosis. So we decided to, to publish an open letter to, um, that, we, that we put out online and, and the British Thoracic Society did some fantastic work as well in advocating for sarcoidosis patients. And sarcoidosis patients were, eventually added to this shielding list. Mm 
But I mean, that was a big win, but obviously it doesn't take away from how difficult shielding and staying indoors 24 hours a day is. Um, so that was one of the one of the one of our big pushes in the last in the last year, year and a half. And well, I don't know, I think if you'd have asked anyone in, in March 2020, I don't think they, they would have expected this COVID situation to be as, as big as it was going to be or, or to last as long as it, as it was going to. But somehow our, uh, chair, our chairperson of the trustees just knew that this was going to be huge. So in a way, we were, we were quite prepared for, for what was going to happen. Um, and we really did have a huge increase in, in demand for information from us. I was looking at the, the figures from the, from the last year and emails to us about COVID and, and, and other things about sarcoidosis went up six times higher than usual during the first lockdown. Website mm. sessions went up five times higher than usual. Calls to the helpline were three or four times higher than they usually were because people just needed information about how vulnerable am I? What, do I need to change anything about what I'm doing? The messaging about shielding was very unclear um, at the start. So people really wanted information for us. And the problem there was there was a, just a lack of information that we could, we could give. And the information that was available was changing pretty much on a daily basis. So it was it was hard for us to, to respond, but luckily we had Henry Shelford, who is our um, chairperson of the trustees, somehow knew that this was gonna be big and we, we kind of all got very prepared. And in and, and a couple of ways we, we managed without overwhelming our capacity is we, we made a COVID section on our website and we had an FAQ page uh, where people could submit questions then we would speak to our specialists about and, and, and get the answers we needed because we needed to respond to people in a way that didn't risk overwhelming our, our, our capacity, our team of two. So we populated this FAQ page with, with information about COVID and we, we also used those um, questions that were coming in to, to host live Q&A sessions with, with specialists. So we'd collect these questions and then we'd go live onto our social media pages with, with different sarcoidosis specialists from around the country. And we'd, we'd put those questions to the specialists and, and get answers out to people in an accessible way that didn't, yeah, didn't risk overwhelming us. And Well, and of course, the other problem is, is nobody knew, right? Nobody, exactly. nobody knew. We're taking all these immunosuppressant drugs as SARC patients, and there just wasn't any data. That's right. It was, That's it right. was doctor's best guess. And, and uh, you know, Dr. Robert Boffman is, was on the podcast in Cincinnati, and he was, he's one of the most respected names in sarcoidosis in the entire world. And at that point, his research was, was doing surveys of patients mm -hmm. and trying to just get a, a body of data that way because you you couldn't test and you know we, you know so one one theory was you know I'm taking this immunosuppressant drug so I'm maybe more likely to get covid but less likely to have an adverse reaction to it because right. the drug will shut it down so right no it's true there was a real lack of lack of answers and a real thirst for answers at the yeah. same time so i mean as things progressed we started to be able to get more answers out to people particularly on things like shielding or or vaccines and yeah but i think there's still lots of unanswered things like one one thing that we don't really have an answer to at the moment is just how effective are these vaccines in people who are immunosuppressed we're hearing lots of different things um but yeah, based off based off my conversations with the specialists and and the, the live Q and A videos we've done with specialists, the general consensus is that they will provide a level of protection, but they won't provide as much protection in as in you as they would in somebody who's not immunosuppressed. But of course, I mean, it, it, with these things, it's all about weighing up the, the risks. Is, is Okay, there's, there might be some risks to having a vaccine that you won't be fully protected, but that is a much lower risk than going out and, and catching COVID and, and, and contracting COVID. 
Right. And vaccination process is going, would you say, well in the UK? I'd say it's going well. Yes, um, it's going well. So they they did sort of priorities that they did partly in age groups working down, and they also vaccinated the clinically extremely vulnerable group quite early on. And, and, and now they're working their way down through the age group. So I think having spoken to some friends, I know that a lot of people in their 30s have now received a text um, and I've had both vaccines because I am a carer for, for, for my mum who's classed as clinically extremely vulnerable. So they really have, I think, even though there's been some mistakes in the last year that have been made, they've done a pretty good job of, of getting the vaccines out there. Mm-hmm. And is there, is there still a segment of the population that's resistant to the idea of the vaccine? There is. Yes, yeah. there is. I, I imagine it's the same in the States. It is. It yeah. is. They're, they're, they're now offering all sorts of crazy rewards to people uh, to, if they'll be get you know, that they can be put in a special lottery for a million dollars. And that's what Oh, wow. I saw, I saw, I think it was in the States where some, some vaccination centers were giving out donuts. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's gone beyond that. It's gone beyond donuts now. It's crazy. Now it's the lottery. Oh, wow. Crazy. Yeah. Wow. But, you know, yeah. whatever it takes to get people vaccinated and reach that magical herd immunity. That's exactly I think that's the thing. Exactly. I do. I do have a lot of conversations with people who are maybe not anti-vaccine, but just have some concerns, which I think is fine. I think it's fine for people to be having these, these conversations and trying to learn as much as they can. And when I have these conversations with patients, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Do your research. Don't just show up for the vaccine without having understood what it is, but make sure the research you're doing is, is based in medicine. Right. I want to ask you a question about um, the the way sarcoidosis treatments are paid for in the UK. Uh, in the United States, most people have some kind of insurance and you go to the doctor and the doctor says you need this medicine with sarcoidosis. It's almost always what we call off label. So it's a, it's a medicine that's that was originally designed for, say, arthritis patients. But the doctor says, oh, you know what, uh, this, this is going to help your sarcoidosis, but then you have to get the insurance to a- approve it. And that's often a difficult process. Mm-hmm. Who pays for the treatment there? Because you guys have more of a, a socialized medicine system. How, how does that work and how difficult is it for people to get the treatment they need? Right. Um, so we don't, the majority of people in this country get free healthcare through the National Healthcare Service, the okay. NHS. And that is paid for essentially by the taxpayer. Right. And we, that is, from my conversations with patients, that is how the majority of people um, get, their, get their sarcoidosis treatments. And they'll, they'll initially go to their GP, which is their general practitioner, who will then refer them to the appropriate the appropriate center. And mm-hmm. um, there, I mean, the problem with that is that there's sometimes a bit of a wait, a waiting time to get to see the consultant. So in those cases, it is possible to, to see the consultant privately. And that will mean that you see them sooner. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and, and let's say the physician decides, and I'll just use my case, because it's handy. So right now I'm taking Humira and it's supposedly something insurance companies don't like because it's relatively expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any difficulty in, uh, in getting an off-label drug if the doctor thinks that's what the patient needs? I don't, generally speaking, no, as far as I know. I mean, I, like I said earlier, I'm not a, a medical person at all. I think yeah, usually once the, the medication is prescribed, it is relatively easy to get. So that's that sounds pretty good compared to the system that, that we have here in the United States, because a lot of the patients who've been on the on the podcast express frustration at that point in their care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think the, it is great that we have a healthcare service that, that looks after patients without asking them to, to pay 
But I mean, like I said, there it's it's not a completely perfect system, and sarcoidosis patients do still face some issues with 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 diagnosis. But I imagine that's just universal. That's not a UK specific mm-hmm. problem. Right. And when you look at your patients in the UK, do you see the same sort of uh, mix that we do in the United States, some pulmonary, some neuro, uh, with the vast majority being pulmonary involvement, uh, some cardiac? Is is that pretty much what you see there as well? Pretty much, yeah. That's pretty much exactly it. Great majority are pulmonary patients. But we do. We we see neuro, we see cardiac, we see a bit of everything. Gotcha. So now we're coming out of the pandemic. If the vaccine uh, continues to work and uh, people are no longer sheltering in place, as it were, do you have any uh, any plans as you look forward in 2021? Uh, any any major fundraisers, or are you sort of reconfiguring the, the the way you're looking at your future? What where are you at? So we're hoping that in the not too distant future, we'll be able to recommence face-to-face fundraisers and in-person events where, where people can, can go and do a run for us or, or whatever they want to do. I think we're a little bit, we're hesitant to do that too soon. So we are going to carry on for the time being with our sort of virtual patient days and our our virtual fundraisers. But I hope that sooner rather than later we'll be able to we'll be able to to start again with with the in person things once we know it's safe. We have a virtual fundraiser going on at the moment, which is a walking challenge and. Patients are, because now shielding has come to an end and the summer's coming, it's called Step Into Summer. So, I mean, all the information about this, if you are a UK listener and you are interested in in doing a little bit of fundraising for Sarcoidosis UK and also getting out and about now the summer's coming, please do either get in touch or or have a look at the information on our website. Great. All right. Leo, I think we've we've touched on just about everything. I really appreciate you joining me on the, on the podcast. It's been my absolute pleasure. I have had a great time talking to you, and yeah, congratulations on such a, a brilliant, brilliant podcast that really does get the word out there about sarcoidosis and and to hear from so many different different voices from the world of sarcoidosis has been fantastic. Just feeding that stumbling Leo mentioned Juliet, who wanted to do a marathon to support Sark UK, and he has provided links to her story, which will be in the show notes. But I want to let you know I'm also planning to reach out to her and see if she is interested in appearing here on the Sark Fighter podcast and telling her story and sharing it firsthand with you. So stay tuned. Keep your fingers crossed, because I think that will be a really interesting interview if Juliet agrees to come on and talk with us. Please don't uh, forget to go back and listen to those bonus episodes I mentioned at the beginning on SARC and COVID-19 and also dealing with prednisone. And uh, there are some rare opportunities there because all the right people come together in one place at the same time. A lot of times patients talk to one another. And I think sometimes in a forum situation, uh, you don't get to the truth. There's a lot of venting, which is important going on. And, and people complaining and so forth. But I, when, when you get the experts all in the same room with the patients and we have sort of a moderated approach to asking the questions about whether it's prednisone or whether it's COVID-19 and you're talking to the top doctors in the world then uh, and, and also a SARC patient and also one of the top researchers in the world, you, you just get to the answers very quickly. And it's important that we get the right answers out there and that people get the information that they really need. So please check out those two recent bonus episodes. Um, If you want to meet the author of the blog, No Tears for Sarcoidosis, Charlton Harris is episode 37, the one right before this one. Let me know if I'm uh, I'm on track with the sarcoidosis 
uh, with the Shark Fighter podcast. Am I saying the same things too often? Are you listening to multiple episodes and you're, you're tired of my intro? Uh, or is that okay because you understand that there are new listeners every time? Uh, but uh, Or if there's an angle uh, or an approach or a story that you want to tell, just email me. It's carlinagency at gmail.com. There's a link in the show notes. And just click on that and and let me know how things are going, how you're uh, liking the podcast, or if you want to be on the podcast, and if you if you have a story to tell. Um, also, you can follow the Sark Fighter with the word "the" in front of Sark Fighter on Instagram. And then if you just put in Sark Fighter uh, in your Facebook search, you'll find the Facebook page as well there. And I just do appreciate your interest in the Sark Fighter podcast. It's growing every day. Uh, I was absolutely thrilled that Sark UK reached out to me uh, from across the world and said, hey, we're listening to your podcast over here in the UK and and we want to be involved with this and, and we want to help you make the Sark Fighter podcast uh, successful in terms of bringing hope to people with sarcoidosis. So thank you so much to Leo and and uh, I'm just so thankful and amazed that that this podcast is is reaching as far as it is, and that people are listening to it. Um, we're coming up on twenty thousand downloads, and when you have a, such a small potential audience, because we're definitely we're not just a niche podcast, we're a micro niche podcast. Uh, I'm just glad that that we're all here and we're all listening, and and, and I want to thank you for for taking the time and for reaching out to me and 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 all the things that we're all doing together to try and bring the sarcoidosis community together via the podcast. Uh, and if you like it, if you like it, please just tell one person and that will help me spread the word and, and uh, help me help you. Give the show a nice review uh, where, uh, wherever you download your podcast, if that's one of the things that, that they offer. Apple Podcasts certainly does. If, and when people see the five stars up there, it really makes a difference. So thanks again to Leo for joining me here today from England, from Sarcoidosis UK, if you will. He is based in London, and I wish him all the best as he grows that organization. And maybe there's a benefactor out there who can donate some money to Sarcoidosis UK and really help them amp up their mission. Until next time, keep fighting. Learn to suffer, you feel pain someday. Learn endurance, your strength will fade away. Dead man walking, trying to keep up the pace. Dead man walking, counting.